Welcome to the But Wait, There's More podcast, a podcast of the teaching ministry of Legacy Church in Plano, Texas. I'm Kevin Boyd. Today I'm here with Justin Foster. Hey, Justin. How's it going, Kevin? Good, brother. Hey, we're today uh, in episode five talking about having Bible-formed versus culture-formed lives. And kind of where this began, this week I was studying Psalm 81 uh, for our Summer in Psalms series. And kind of tell you what that psalm is about. It is a psalm written by Asaph. It's written for the Feast of Tabernacles. It starts with this kind of ruckus celebration. The band is told, turn it up to 11. Let's, let's go nuts here. And they're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the, the wilderness journey, God's goodness and his faithfulness as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. And so uh, at this, this feast or this festival in the, the Jews' uh, calendar year, it is kind of a, a wild celebration of God's goodness and, and provision in their life. And so it starts, and you can kind of imagine the people coming together and, and gathering. They built these little, like, huts. That's why it's also called the Feast of Booths, these little, like, booths that they would live in for the seven days of the festival. And they are all coming together, and the worship leaders, like Asaph, are calling out to them, and they're singing these songs. And so you can imagine all of the people coming, almost in a corporate worship setting, kind of like we might have as a church on a Sunday. Uh, the coming together, the voices raised, it looks really good. It feels really good. They're declaring God's faithfulness. But then you get to the middle of the psalm, and suddenly the voice of the Lord takes over, and he says, O Israel, if you would only listen to me. And so kind of the hammer drops that they have come, they have gathered, they're doing the things that the people of God do. They're celebrating with words, and yet God reveals that their ears, which are the conduit of their hearts, are far from him. They have rejected his voice in their lives. And then he goes into the idea that there have been strange gods speaking into their lives, the lives of the, uh, the gods of the Canaanites that are influencing the minds, the thoughts, and the actions of the people. And so what comes is this moment of revelation where they are acting like and even resembling in some ways what the people of God should be doing, and yet internally they're far from God. And God calls them to listen to him. He says, if you, listen, if you'd open your mouth wide, I would fill it. I would satisfy you. I would take care of all of your needs if you'd only listen to me. And this psalm moved me down the road into a conversation that you and I have been having for years around here about people having Bible-formed thoughts and lives versus people having culture-formed thoughts and lives, and how the church even, just legacy, but churches are full, in America in particular, uh, with a lot of folks who may be more culturally Christian right. than they are uh, intimately woven, interwoven their lives and their thought life and their, and their decision-making uh, with the Word of God and the breath of God, the, the Spirit of God. And so today, we're going to talk about having Bible-formed lives versus culture-formed lives, the uh, dangers of one and the benefits of the other. Uh, probably a good place to start. Justin, you kind of kick us off. Uh, let's get down to some basic definitions for anyone who's listening. What does it mean to have a Bible-formed 
life versus a culture-formed life. What does Bible-formed and culture-formed mean? Yeah. Uh, the answer is Plato. Okay. Plato. Plato, uh, like the... Like the little molding clay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because internal and external pressures and desires form us and shape us. And so Plato is, is that perfect example. Uh, whether we use molds or our hands, we put pressure on it, in it, through it, to shape it. Um, and so likewise, as people, we are constantly being shaped by the things that we allow, whether consciously or unconsciously, into our lives. Uh, so whether that's the things of God or the things of culture, uh, there's never an all or nothing in our lives. So to answer the question, uh, to have Bible-formed lives uh, is to have a life where we have allowed the Spirit to work in our life through rooting our thoughts, attitudes, and desires in what scripture says, what God himself has revealed through scripture. Whereas the culture-formed life is allowing uh, the changing feelings and attitudes and mores of our society or our culture to determine what is good or what is right or even what sounds spiritual because we hear a lot of, I'm spiritual in our culture, but not I know God personally. That's good. That's good. Plato. I, I thought maybe you were going like philosopher Plato. Oh, yeah. First, but... There you go. That would, that would be more uh, intellectual of me, but that's not, that's not where it goes. So here's a little bit of what I was thinking about is we use the word formed. That has to do with how we're shaped, how we grow, how we develop. Uh, and so that has several implications. We grow... Uh, cognitively, our minds, our knowledge, we grow behaviorally, our actions, the things that we do with our lives, and we grow socially, uh, the way we relate with with other people, even how we relate with God. So cognitive, behavioral, and social, three aspects. Try to uh, imagine uh, how these three things are constantly forming in us to make us the people that we are. Uh, Think of it like this, three vertical columns, maybe even picture like an old Roman uh, building that you might see big, Mm. you know, sturdy columns holding up a roof. So picture three vertical columns holding up, say, the house of your life. Uh, The question is, what is the foundation that these three columns sit on? The cognitive, the behavioral, and the social, and the life sits upon those things. Uh, Is that thing that the column's sitting on solid or is it a constantly evolving thing? Mm. Um, I, I think kind of of the parable Jesus told of the man who built his house on the rock versus the mm. sand. So this is actually part of our, our virtual VBS this week. Okay. Um, the kids learned this story. Uh, in this case that we're talking about today, if we apply that same story, that parable, having a biblically formed mind and life is, is saying my thought life, my actions, my decisions, my responses to situations in life, and my relationships will be informed by the foundation of the Word of God. And I'm, I'm even specifically going to say the Bible right? Um, and how God reveals himself there as the Holy Spirit illumines us to the truths there. The Bible, which self-discloses to be living and active, it's not a dead word. It has a constant application. It's right timeless in that way. But according to Jesus, the content and the message of the Word of God does not change along with the changes of the world. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And Jesus prayed in in John 17 for his own that they would be sanctified by the truth 
of God's word, that, that the truth of God's word would be what forms us. Right. So in this illustration with the three columns and the house on top, the Bible, God's own words, is the solid rock on which life can be built mm. and flourish. And culture, then, is the sand, which is always changing, always shifting, always moving. Uh, and if you build your life on culture, you will never be sturdy. Makes sense. That, it does. That's that's a great illustration, a great visual. Okay, so Plato or a house on three columns. Rocks I'm, I'm going to go with that. Yeah. It could go either either way. Yeah. But but what we're talking about today is having uh, a life and a mind that is in relationships that are formed on the sturdiness of God's word that live in in light of, in response to, and oriented around what God is saying versus um, an ever changing culture and what it's saying in seasons and out. So if we're to follow the Psalm 81 question, oh Israel, if you would only listen to me, uh, what does it mean for us to listen to God, to orient our lives around his word, to hear God? What is it like to listen to God? Yeah, Uh, You know, the, the important thing here is listening to what God has revealed, not uh, not necessarily what what you think he wants to tell someone else, but what he has yeah. revealed. Um, and so I, I go to a couple places. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen for all of Scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the Christian may be equipped for all good works. You know, uh, so it, it is Scripture, the Bible, building our lives, forming our lives around Scripture, helps us to. Uh, know how to act, uh, what to believe. It is the final authority of, of life and faith. Um, and then beyond that is Psalm 1. We, we've talked about Psalm 1 quite a bit, uh, but meditating on the law or on the Word of God, chewing on that, um, or even then uh, the, the final section of Scripture is First Kings 19, where Elijah goes to Mount Horeb and there is an earthquake, a fire, and wind, but God doesn't speak in that, but it's the small, still voice that he speaks to the, the prophet. And so it is making intentional time with God uh, in removing distractions so that, that he could listen. And so for us, to answer the question, it's bringing Scripture into our lives, reading it, and making sure that all other things, all other distractions are removed so that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, what God has spoken to us for our life with him. You mentioned Psalm 1 and taking God's word into our life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how often in the Bible um, the idea of of eating, of ingesting and and digesting Scripture is a theme. In in, uh, Matthew 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, Mm -hmm. but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's the nourishment for our soul. It gives us life. Isaiah 55, very similar. Uh, God says, listen to me, eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the richest fare. Give ear, listen, come to me, hear me so that your soul may live. Mm. Jeremiah took that same metaphor. We memorized this as a church last year during a, a series we taught about the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. And then, of course, the Psalm 1 that you talked about chewing. I, 
I, I think uh, one of the mistakes that I make and probably a lot of folks make when it comes to, to trying to hear God is uh, we try to hear God in the same rhythm, the chaotic rhythm and pace that the rest of our lives uh, seem right. to take. And you talk about the, the small, still voice. Right. Uh, until we take time to be quiet, mm-hmm. I don't know that we'll really hear much of God. Mm-hmm. Not because he, he can't speak over the chaos, right. um, but because our ears are not so committed to hearing amidst the rest of the noise. Yeah. My experience says that, that God isn't typically heard in the noisy, restless seasons of my life. Right. But more so when I turn to him with intent to hear. Um, So what are some of the mistakes you think people make when it comes to attempting to listen? Right. Uh, You know, before I get there, I I think your your, uh, explanation of uh, not that God can't speak over, uh, but that he chooses to, to have that yeah. small, still voice with us. It, it makes me think of uh, early on in my marriage, uh, if Becca and I were riding with my parents somewhere, uh, I, growing up with my dad, I was accustomed to listening for his voice because he was very soft-spoken, mm-hmm. unless he was angry. But yeah. uh, in the car, we would be riding somewhere, and I, and I remember this one instance where I just answered my dad because I heard him. Becca didn't even know he had asked a question um, because she had not become accustomed to listening for his quiet voice. And that's what we do. Uh, What we should be doing as Christians is becoming so familiar, so intimate with God that we can listen for his voice uh, because we've learned to tune out the road noise Mm. because that's not what we're paying attention to. We're paying attention to our Father or our Heavenly Father. I wonder from God's perspective, is some of the reason he loves to speak in the the small, still voice has to do with... Um, what we hear and the the tenderness, the the integrity, the faithfulness, the gentleness right. that we hear in those moments. I think about my own parenting and moments when there's chaos uh, in my home with my kids, and I yell over the chaos. Right. And the way my kid, the response it elicits from my kids versus mm-hmm. when the chaos is going on, and I'm able to arrest their attention for a moment and just to speak gently with them. To look them in the eyes and to speak, and the kind of response then that's elicited yeah. from them in those moments is such—it's so much more profound, right? And and it it encourages relationship yeah. rather than causing uh, fear and my children yeah. to turn away from yeah. my loud voice. Yeah, it builds trust, right? Yeah. So maybe that is the voice that God chooses so often to use because it speaks to the the tender heart Mm -hmm. and it helps us to trust him yeah yeah we we respond as people uh with with gentleness a lot better than we do with loudness yeah um i I feel like an old man because i I always want to keep the volume turned down or you know the neighbors are being too loud or, or whatever it happens to be uh but whenever i have music on in the background and it's just loud enough that I can hear it but still soft I respond better that way um, 
but whenever you're talking about interpersonal relationships, that soft gentleness of um, you're not, I'm not angry with you, I'm not mad with you, I'm drawing you into me. I, I want this uh, between us. And so I think the, that small, still voice, that gentle voice is how God chooses, like you said, God chooses to speak to us because we respond much better. Um, and, and I think that's the, the problem uh, as, as we, we will talk about uh, with the cultural view of who God is. Uh, you, you talk to a lot of people and they're like, oh, God in the Old Testament was angry. He was, he was vengeful um, because they have this picture of God yelling or screaming rather than that soft, gentle father who, who draws us in with that, that gentle, sweet conversation. Which speaks to the, the concept that their, their relationship with God has been built on some kind of cultural narrative rather than an, an honest and a an, uh, real experience Absolutely. with God alone. Um, because having been a Christian for 30 years mm-hmm. and a pastor for nearly 20, I've never had God yell at me. And I've done a lot of stuff that dishonored him. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of stuff where I've, I've rejected him. Yeah. But I've never had the Lord yell at me right. in some way. Yeah. But I've often had him wait on me. And I've often had, ha- had him interrupt a moment so yeah. that I could look at him and he could speak yeah. gently to me. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe people outside a relationship with God who are, are, have a view of God as being harsh and and this this angry God maybe simply haven't had um, a biblically formed or an honestly formed through the spirit's yeah. relationship with the Lord. That's a right. I mean a kind of a harsh thing to, hard thing to hear, but it may be that culture has more shaped their yeah. view of God than than hearing from God themselves. Right, right. And when we again when we listen to God or, or we. Um, seek God through the reading of his word, we find those instances where it, it uh, dispels what the culture has said. Because right. uh, as we're talking, I'm reminded of the uh, after Christ's resurrection and he's speaking with Peter and he, he asks Peter, do you love me? Mm-hmm. Yes, Lord, I do. Peter, do you love me? Three times, and, and as I read that, never once, do I hear Jesus going, well, do you love me? Come on. It's not a, it's not yelling. It's not frustration. Why did you deny me? Yes. Why did you not show up where you were supposed to show right. up? Why did you go this direction yeah. and not this direction? Yeah. But hey, yeah. do you love me? Do you love me? It's, uh, it's based in a relationship yeah. that God has initiated, God the Son, in, in bringing Peter in and saying, I love you and I'm gentle and I want what's best for you. So I'm, I'm speaking with you with a gentle tone because you are mine. Um, and, and that, again, that is the God of the Bible. Um, and that's why having a biblically informed view of who God is and a, and, and a, a relationship with God needs to be rooted in Scripture so that we know who God is. That's right. So you alluded earlier to... Uh, the idea that sometimes we mistake uh, what truly is from God for what maybe people have said is from God right. or, you know, God told me to do this. Yeah. It's kind of like the opposite, the mirror of the devil made me do it sometimes. Right. 
Um, what are some of the difficulties or mistakes that, that people make when it comes to hearing from God? Yeah. Traps that we might just fall into, yeah. even unintentionally. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I've, I've been learning in this season um, with a group of other Christians is what it means to be assertive. Um, and, it, and again, in our culture, a lot of times assertive uh, or assertiveness is code for getting to be a jerk to people. <laughs> Um, but, but a true understanding of assertiveness really is if you and I are speaking and I'm attempting to be assertive with you, I take your feelings and your personality into consideration along with my feelings and personality so that I speak truth with grace. Um, and so I, I just share that to say a lot of times we, when we speak, uh, to another person and say, well, this is from the Lord or, or listening to the Lord. A lot of times it's based out of a, a misunderstanding of the definition or a misunderstanding of who God is. So it, it sometimes can be as simple as um, coming up to someone and saying, the Lord wants me to tell you this. Yeah. Uh, but really it's more of a, I'm frustrated with it and, and I've read it in scripture and I want to, to change you or, or mold you. Um, but it's not from a, a place of, of grace and truth. It's not from a place of, I, I want to help you. Um, but we're all guilty of that. At least I know I am. Um, or then other, other things, um, other ways that we do that are just a, a cursory reading of the text or of the scripture and just saying, well, it used these words, so that's how I'm going to speak to this person. Um, and I don't think that... It's, it's helpful because, again, uh, as with all of our podcasts and all of these topics, we seek to introduce the terms and define them. And so whenever we're on the same uh, level or the same playing field with the same definitions, we can work forward. And so just making sure that we're not uh, using biblical terms in an unbiblical way. And so that's sometimes how we mishear God. And one of the, I think, pervasive issues throughout generations is to hear something that sounds like God mm -hmm. and to misapply it in an out-of-context right. manner uh, to inform a decision right. or to inform a relationship uh, or to form an ideology yeah. around a snippet. But this isn't uh, just a, a Christian problem. This is a human problem. Right. Uh, this is why on the news we have all of these uh, these cancel culture moments where we say we hate this person because this person said this right. and they give you a 10 second blip and then it comes out later that there was a 10 minute interview and this 10 second blip was actually sarcasm right. or it was truth but it was truth within the context of a particular moment in that, right. in that interview and out of context it has a, a whole different kind of life and it is not true to the meaning of the speaker right and that's something that, that has been done uh, for every generation mm -hmm. with the Word of God. Uh, we did a series a few years ago called Folk Theology, right? You right. remember this? I do. Uh, where we looked at uh, ideology that Christians even have built their lives around, uh, an idea that was really an out-of-context truth, which made it an untruth. Right. And it's probably, I was talking with Dustin yesterday, it's probably a good season to revisit yeah. that kind of idea. Uh, in our church uh, is to help people orient truth and context yeah. so that it can be applied faithfully. Yeah. Uh, 
one of the other difficulties I think I struggle with, and, and I don't assume I'm not the only one, uh, when it comes to hearing from God, reading the Bible, understanding it, um, is I often can approach God analyzing more than listening. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. Um, rather than taking it in and absorbing its full meaning, I immediately am fussing over the details. Mm-hmm. And I can remember even back in, in high school, uh, I went to like a, it was for a peer assistance and leadership program, a, a mentor program I was uh, taking part of. And they had a training on being a good listener. Mm. And it, this is 101 stuff. Uh, a good listener has uh, focused attention on the person they're hearing. They're taking in the the body language they're taking in the context that they're sitting in and they're not fussing over every single word they're hearing the intent of the person in front of them uh and and not simply that um they are uh hearing the heart uh, of their listener rather than forming their responses immediately in their head thinking about what i'm going to say next right what is that it's bad listening that's what I, I struggle with a lot of times with, with the Bible, uh, with the Word of God. I see it, and I start analyzing it. Right. Part of that's because I've been a Christian for a while now. Mm-hmm. Part of it's because I went to school to do a degree in Bible and a master's degree in, in theology. So in some ways, I have formed my approach to be a scientific approach to the Bible, and maybe even an economical approach to the Bible— I open it and I go, mm, that'll preach. Right. Mm, I could yeah. use this. Mm, that'll work. Yeah. Rather than absorbing its full meaning, taking it in, meeting with God in his word to know him, yeah. to understand him, to grow in, in relationship with him. Yeah. And so I, I think something I'm challenged in is I need to start with a conscious desire to engage him. Right. in an honest and personal way. To, and this could be strange, but think of him as present and speaking these words. Not, I'm reading them, but he's speaking these words to me like he's standing in front of me. Right. He's disclosing his mind and his emotions and his will to me. Meditate on those words as if I'm face-to-face with him, which is actually a theolog- theological reality. By the Holy Spirit, God is present with me speaking these words into my mind and heart. And if I could meditate on, on it in that manner until his thoughts begin to take shape in my mind, I think I'd be a better listener. Right. Yeah. What other, other places do we get trapped in trying to hear God? Well, I, I don't know if I have quite another place, but I do want to, to play off of the, the idea of read and take. Um, of our, our culture uh, currently is a culture of... of Producing, yeah. So we uh, we do often read a verse and say that will preach, and then we we run to see who we can talk to, yeah. Um, and share that with, and, and not that that's a bad thing. We should share the scriptures with people, um, but but I do wonder what it would look like um, if we looked at at scripture uh, as. A, a note or a letter from God. So I, I, you know, this is kind of a weird way to explain it, but I remember 
in high school getting those notes from from those girls you know two desks over from me uh, I wouldn't take those and then I would share them I would take them and I'd pour over them and, and be like what does she mean by this and I would just I would really um, absorb myself in it yeah. um, and so like I said it's kind of a, a weird way to describe it but what if we looked at scripture as a way for us to pour over rather than take it right away so that we can share it with people right. what if we kept it to ourselves for just a moment so that we can mull it over really immerse ourselves in it in such a way that we know um, both what what God was saying to a group of people in the context that it was written um, to them but for us, right? Scripture was written to them, whoever the people group was, Israel or the church, um, written to them, but it's for us, for our benefit, for our edification or our growth, our, our desire for him. And so just sitting in that, not, not wanting to produce something from it, but sitting with God, allowing him to read it. Um, or even, uh, can't do this, this at this moment, but going to a bookstore to hear an author read from his or her book uh, and and how that changes the way we perceive the words on those pages um, whenever we sit in front of that author and let them read that to us. What would it look like if we uh, begin to work through uh, mentally and emotionally that the spirit who indwells us as Christians uh, is the same uh, spirit who inspired these words and so in that way we can take it and be present with the author of scripture that way and you are pointing back to your psalm one which about mulling over it right uh, psalm one talks about the person whose delight is in the law of the lord and in his law he meditates day and night right. here's the answer what will he be like it'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield fruit and season and its leaves do not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. And I remember years ago studying this passage, and one of the really beautiful and fascinating uh, kind of problems presented in, in Psalm 1 verse 2 is this person is delighting in the, the word says, law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And there's a couple of problems here. One is so often when we think of law, we think of crime and punishment. Right. We think of uh, the rules, which doesn't sound delightful, and yet this person is delighting in right. the law of the Lord. Now, the interesting thing is the word Torah is the word here for law, the Hebrew word Torah, which refers to the opening of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. Right. Um, and if I think about what the Torah is, it's not just law. It's not just rules. Mm -hmm. Though you can find plenty of rules there, Deuteronomy or in Exodus and Ten Commandments, things like that. There are rules, but there's narrative. Right. And what is the Torah altogether? It is the representation of who God is and how he is with and for people. Right. His good intention for humankind and that he's present among the people whom he has made. Right. And when you think of it that way, there is a delight then when you are uh, constantly consumed with the idea that there is a God who is like this, mm -hmm. and he has made me, and he is for me, and he is he's trying to constantly point me towards the life where I may flourish. 
And so this says his delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates. It's the second problem. Um, because the word meditate is weird for us today. It often takes people towards kind of an, an Eastern meditation, which is the idea of an emptying uh, of the mind. And yet this word more is on the idea of mulling or chewing or gnawing on the what? The law. On the reality of who God is and he's present and he's for us yeah. and he wants us to flourish. Yeah. Who is chewing on that. If we could, as you said, chew on or mull on the words of God, mm-hmm. which are the revelation of himself and his good intent for humankind, yeah. it would, what would it do? It would bring delight. It would make us like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit, yeah. does not wither. Yeah. That's the, the outcome if we would not be in such a rush to produce. Right. To, oh, let me economically take this and do something with it. Yeah. Whether it's with good intent, because right. it'll solve a problem, yeah. or if it's because I want people to know that I know something yeah. and that I'm passionate about something yeah. and that I have some kind of knowledge other people ought to know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I used to refer to this as the poli 1301 problem. Okay. Um, so every year uh, when colleges start, you always know who the freshmen are because on campus they're taking political science 1301 <laughs> and they all of a sudden know politics better than every other person out there yeah. because they're taking something that they're learning, which is good, but then they're running with it before they've had time to really chew on it or understand it. And, and we do that in all areas of our lives. Well, it's the seminary problem, isn't it? Oh, yeah. We, I mean, we've both been there where you, you start seminary and suddenly you are God's greatest gift to humankind because you yep. know everything. Yep. And then five years later, you're going, maybe I don't know everything. And 10 years later, you're going... I think there's some things I don't know. And 20 years later, you're going, I don't know anything. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, at, at my seminary that I graduated from, there's a saying, uh, you can always tell a, a Dallas seminary man, you just can't tell him much because <laughs> exactly. there's this level of arrogance. And so as you grow, as you spend in, you know, in seriousness, as you spend time with God, you understand more, you should understand more that he is the one with wisdom and knowledge not you, but you're growing in that, but his ways are higher than our ways, and his wisdom is higher than our wisdom. Okay, so let me, let me jump off of there. That's yeah. good. What do we do? Uh, so we've got our ways. We have our ways. What are they? It's, it's cognitive. It's behavioral. It's social, right. and it's informed by so many things and voices. I'd say it's informed by, by culture, the ideas, the feelings, the trends around right. me. Those are my ways, right. his ways. What do we do when something taught in the Bible, his ways, comes into direct conflict with widely held cultural values, my ways, our ways? Yeah. What do we do when something taught from the Bible comes into direct conflict with widely held cultural values? Yeah. Um, so I, I think there should be two things that we do. Uh, first is we need to see how and where in Scripture it is that we can familiarize ourselves. Um, so again, instead of taking just one verse or two verses out of context, uh, developing a biblical understanding, seeing where throughout Scripture it is. Um, and then the second thing is we need to talk or, or dialogue in Christian community. That's done through prayer, so you with God, 
um, but also done with friends or a small group or church members, whoever's trusted and faithful, those that you can look at and see uh, a, a word that both you and I like is, is a cruciform life, yeah. one that is shaped by the cross, that has implications because of the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, and so when we see those people, invite them into a dialogue so that we can begin to talk about and, and wrap our mind around what it is that God is calling us to do and how that is in opposition to what the culture is saying. Um, again, it goes back to the idea of, of learning, and, and a, you know, I've thought about it several times since you've mentioned it, uh, but the, your three pillars or your three columns. Um, in the educational world, uh, whenever you write lessons, you have lesson aims, right? And so you have cognitive and affective lesson aims. And so uh, that's what you're looking at producing in this person. So with that in mind, uh, the dialogue is meant to help you uh, cognitively or think through and then affectively how does it change my will and my volition through all of that of course with the help of the spirit in the middle of all of this absolutely well and I think it, in some degree you're asserting that a decision has to be made right um, when we face this kind of a conflict where something taught in the Bible comes in direct conflict with widely held cultural values um, it seems like those of us who, who don't simply want to abandon the Bible have to choose between two options. First option is simply to decide that the Bible was good for the original hearers, but, you know, it's not as relevant for us today. Yeah. That it, it was good in that moment, but it doesn't really apply in my current context or situation. Right. Or we have to make the choice that it was good for its original hearers and is still good for us today. Right. Yeah. And you're asserting that... that, that one of the two things has to be decided. You're kind of leaning in towards the faithful Christian would say it was good and it, it is good. Correct. In other words, uh, for an example, uh, you know, just to tick people off, uh, but, it, but it's an easy one um, because the Bible seems to be very clear on this, that sex is a thing that's created by God mm -hmm. that's meant to be shared and expressed within the confines of a one-man, one-woman marriage, right. which is... Uh, meant for a man and a woman to experience a unique oneness, uh, kind of transparency and a unity yep. that uh, in some way um, kind of reveals both the nature of the Trinity, mm -hmm. the Father, Son, and Spirit are one yep. in the same way that a man and wife come together and, and become one, and also uh, the kind of intimacy that can be shared between a human and, and the father, that there is something deeply profound that can happen when trust uh, is given, when walls are broken down, and when commitment uh, is given in that way. So here's our example. Uh, one option would be to say it was good for the Israelites and the first century Christians to save sex for marriage but, you know, that's not really something that's necessary for Christians today. You know, times are different. Or another option would be to say it was good for Israelites and for first century Christians to save sex for marriage. And it's still good for us to do this today. Right. And then a decision has to be made. Yeah. And I, I think you and I both would agree that there's a, a, a faithful decision. Yeah. And, and one where I've now taken control over scripture. The issue is really of my belief of inerrancy in scripture right. and its place of authority in my life. 
Am I the one who determines where and when the word of God is applied? Or is God in charge of that? Does the Bible have authority over my life? And I have submitted myself to it. Right, right. One one thing that I think could be helpful in this moment is use the word inerrancy. Would you define that just in case someone is unfamiliar with it? Yeah, I mean that the Bible as we have it is um, perfectly what God has intended for it to be for humankind. Though God inspired human authors, its content and its message is exactly what he would have it to be that we might know him and know his heart and his ways and might uh, have relationship with him and be able to walk in his ways. There's no mistake in its matter, no fault in its parts. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I agree, and especially in terms of uh, part of my role doing premarital counseling, walking through that aspect with, with couples of saying, Scripture is not here uh, to, for you to pick and choose. It's not a buffet. Right. Um, and my goal is to help you, future husband, future wife, to submit your lives your attitudes, your actions to the Word of God and ultimately to God uh, so that you can best live uh, to the glory of God for the sake of your spouse. Um, And so recognizing uh, whether it is sex outside of marriage or any number of of, um, ways of living that Scripture calls the Christian to, making sure that we submit to God in that because that is uh, holistically what God intends for us, and we do see benefit and intimacy with God through that submission to him and his word. Absolutely. Okay, so if I was to go so far as to agree that what's in the Bible was good then and also good now, Mm -hmm. and if I could come to the Bible with a conscious desire to engage him in an honest and personal way to to pour over it, like, like the love note, Uh, from your many childhood girlfriends (laughs) (laughs) or uh, to chew on it and delight in the fact that God is who he is and that he is how he is for me and with me, um, then what would keep me from seeking biblical answers for cultural issues? What, What prevents a lot of Christians who maybe deep down, if pressed, believe these things? What keeps them from seeking biblical answers for cultural issues Um, you know I as I think about this I I think several come into play one may just be fear fear of of man fear of what culture says fear of being uh, labeled a certain way maybe part of it is uh, even even pride Uh, pride to the extent that well I, I know it to be true I agree with it um, I just, I really don't want to go any further. I'm like, I'm, I'm situated good enough with this because I don't have that issue rearing its head in my life that often. So I'm, I'm just good. Um, or even, uh, maybe even a knowledge of the culture and the ways that it's, it's gone poorly in the past. And so just not a desire to seek answers from scripture. I think, um, to some degree, even many of the most faithful churchgoers, 
who are Christians and who read their Bibles may still have a, a doubt that the Bible speaks to all of the complexity of the issues that we face in 2020. Right. Because there's not a Bible verse about the internet. Right. And there's not a Bible verse about, um, about the current political system that we live in. Yeah. You know, that, we're talking about a Middle Eastern world where there wasn't a separation of church and state. And the kinds of things that we experience today seem to be different. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that there are a lot of church-going Christians who read their Bibles who still doubt that God's Word has application for the complexity of of life in 2020. The thing that I would encourage them to is to understand that um, while culture is an ever-changing, ever-shifting thing and will always present itself in new ways, the ideas of humanity and identity and um, the roots of the, the sins that present themselves in new and different ways in season and out uh, stay pretty much the same. Right. There was always humanity created in the image of God that has fallen short of the glorious life God intended because we chose to uh, seek to be our own lords, to reject his rule, his good rule over our life in favor of, you know, trying to lead our own lives. And when you look at something like uh, the internet, the internet isn't sin. It's not sinful. It's neutral. Um, What the human heart fallen in sin has done with the internet causes a lot of havoc and problems in our lives and it presents a lot of chaos whether it be things like uh, perverseness and pornography that's found there or whether it be uh, ways people use it to abuse and hurt one another uh, whether it be uh, a vehicle for sharing false narratives and and fake news uh, whatever the case may be the underlying roots are exactly the same as it was in Scripture. Hearts are consumed with, I mean, with sin, with lust, with uh, anger, with uh, fear, with all, all of, of these conditions. So I would say, without a doubt, every issue I might face in this life in 2020, 2030, 2050, 2152, if Jesus hasn't come back, yeah. have been spoken to in the Bible. Yeah. It's perfect right. if we would go to it and we would seek the Lord in it, and we would ask the Holy Spirit's help, we might find uh, illumination that applies itself in the very issues that we're struggling with right now. Well, and, you know, I I think of what John Calvin said about the book of Psalms. Uh, The book of Psalms is the anatomy book of the soul Mm. because it speaks to every, um, not physical situation, but to every emotion and feeling um, and, and honesty and rawness before God and with God and from God. Um, and so I, I think when we begin to understand that Scripture really does speak into our lives, that it's not just uh, an ancient book or, or series of books, 66 books, that we carry around and tote, you know, hold up on a, a pedestal, but when we begin to see that it really does speak into our lives, um, and has answers and forms us in such a way that we can live rightly with God and with people. 
uh, it changes the way we view uh, when we come to, to those words. I think uh, I'll give you one more thing on, on this, this question. What keeps Christians from seeking biblical answers for cultural issues? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it moves into my next question, but um, I'll give you the next question and we'll tie these two together. Okay. I, I'm making an assumption here or, or an observation that it seems in the last few years suddenly more difficult than it has been in past days mm-hmm. in American Christianity to hold true to biblical ethics. Um, I think the last five to seven years, it's gotten suddenly much more difficult to hold true to biblical ethics yeah. in, the, in, an American, uh, in American Christianity. Right. I see it. Uh, in our churches, I see it in people who would self declare themselves Christian, and yet their their ethic or their moral doesn't align with Scripture. Yeah. It aligns with more of a cultural narrative. Right. Um, why does it seem suddenly more difficult? I think that may be tied to some of the reason uh, Christians aren't seeking biblical answers for cultural yep. issues. Yeah, um, you know, you in fact you had used this term earlier on uh, as we were talking but the idea of cancel culture. Um, I, I think it seems difficult for Christians to live um, their lives faithfully informed or formed by scripture because of the fact that people are so quick to cancel you or to shame you, to, to throw you out. Um, it's the, uh, the idea of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that leads into it uh, for a lot of Christians is that it's difficult to live our lives faithfully, to be formed by Scripture because we are afraid of being canceled or being um, done away with, being uh, thrown out to where we are seen as useless or we are labeled as one way uh, that the overarching culture uh, disagrees with. Absolutely. I think that uh, I experienced that as a pastor, um, as someone who, uh, whether in preaching, teaching, or counseling, um, is asked and tasked with speaking into the lives of people. Um, there's always a consciousness of the words that I'm saying, which is healthy and right. right. I should be uh, sober-minded and careful with my words. I mean, there's a lot of uh, James that talks about how we use our words and Proverbs, that the power of life and death is in the tongue. And, and James talks about it being able to set a forest aflame or be the rudder of a ship or the bridle on a horse. We've got to be careful with our words. But I can also obsess and be fearful that, man, if I say this thing in this way, will they throw the baby out with the bathwater? If I speak this truth, hard as it is, will they hear any of the other stuff if I do? Or in this day and time, cancel culture, I mean, is it new? Will they church hop? Will they say, well, I don't like what that guy said. I'm going to go to a different one. Which, on one side, I say, well, you know, okay, go for it. And, And if they're teaching the Bible as well, you'll just hop again. On the other side, I say, no, but I love this person. I care for this person. I want to walk with this person. And it's easier to do so maybe in a a deeply committed, uh, discipling environment, but harder to do so when there's platform. In in this day and age, 
news. We talk about why it's more difficult now. We've never had more of an online platform. And I don't only mean the internet, but more of a public voice right. in society than we do today. Not just those who are leaders, mm-hmm. but every person has such a public platform today. Right. Because my goodness, even if it's not that you have a social, you know, 10 social media accounts, it's that you were saying something at Whataburger to your friend and somebody next to you heard it and tweeted it. Right. And so suddenly you didn't intend for it to be a public platform, but it became so. And so I think some of the attention and focus on the public platform, uh, call that our online life uh, for a metaphor, has discouraged us from uh, focus on our offline life Mm. in in such a way. And part of of what um, seems to make it more difficult to hold true to a biblical ethic is that we lived for such a long time in this country with the assumption that we were a Christian nation. And even today, people will say say that, that we're we're a Christian nation. I mean, it says one nation under God, right? Yet if if we look at, I know you're a, a history guy, if we look at the founding of our nation, it wasn't founded on the freedom to a Christian world. It was founded on a freedom from religion, from an oppressive uh, state church. Right. It was that we wouldn't be controlled by a church state, right. but that we would have the freedom to worship individually and personally without coercion. Yeah. And many of our founding fathers might have been Christians and might have sought uh, the Lord and the scriptures and form their life around a relationship with God. But many of them, we also know in history, were moralists right. whose moralism mimicked or looked, just it just was very similar to a Judeo-Christian yeah. moral or ethic. Right. And that built this kind of bubble mm-hmm. over our nation that we lived in for many hundreds of years. Right. This moralistic bubble that reflects a Judeo-Christian ethic. Right. And so it was generally acceptable Mm -hmm. by the wide populace. And those who were outside that Judeo-Christian ethic or moral were looked at as outsiders, as sinners, as uh, liberals or whatever. But with time, the bubble has burst. And we've realized it, it was not a devotion to the Lord or an intimate relationship with him or a commitment to him that drove this culture that we lived within. It was just a popular moral. Right. And as that moral has devolved in our society, it has placed this pressure on those who've called themselves Christians to really begin to come down to, did I just live a cultural moralism with a cultural Christianity uh, layer over it? Or do I have a deep and honest relationship with Jesus? Am I submitted to the word of God? Do I take uh, my, my worldview and my identity and my, my actions and, and my way of life uh, as, as direction and obedience from the word of God? Or do I, I uh, just, did I used to fit that paradigm and now I don't know where I fit? It was just ideas. So what keeps Christians from seeking biblical answers for cultural issues? I think sometimes it's because uh, we didn't have a deeply held belief that the Holy Spirit grew in our heart in response to the Word of God, but we had just kind of a a culture that we subscribed to, and when that culture devolved or dissipated, we were left unfounded Mm -hmm. 
without a strong foundation. Right. That sand shifted, and now we go, well, you know, it's generally not as popular to hold that position any right. longer. So what I will do is I will take the, the big words of love and grace, which are absolutely the marks of a Christian, right. and I'll just pour them over all of the stuff that I'm uncomfortable with. Love and grace, love and grace, yeah. love and grace. If it's not love and grace, here's the only issue I see with that. Galatians. Mm. Book of Galatians, um, Paul writes to them and says, should we send more that grace may increase? Right. His answer, may it never be. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a danger. We have sought to not go much deeper into discovering what is the real biblical position for this issue because... It's not popular, it's not comfortable, mm-hmm. it's not easy, so I'm just going to pour love and grace yeah. over it and move on with my life. Right. But we've allowed in our own heart sin to reside, maybe even in our actions, mm-hmm. to, um, to, to go along with sinful positions and sinful issues. We haven't stood on a firm foundation. Uh, and so we now are unintentionally, functionally, the house built on the sand. Right, right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that that ties in with um, the the fact that we are a biblically illiterate culture. Um, and, you know, uh, part of that, and, and we may get to that, that there are, there are remedies for that. Um, there are ways to be formed by Scripture, so that that we are no longer biblically illiterate, um, but I do think that that's a part of it. I, I remember entering seminary and then graduating. the The seminary would make us take the TBTK, the Theological and Bible uh, Knowledge Test. So yeah, however, however those letters work out. Anyway, uh, several hundred questions and. Whenever I, I entered seminary, I'm like, I'm going to ace this. I've been reading the Bible. I know what's up. And it's like the most random questions. You know, uh, in Isaiah 14, there are three types of clay jars that are mentioned. What are they? Or, you yeah. know, whatever they are. And uh, and it's just, it's the most random thing. And, and I got like a 23. You know, it was, <laughs> it was horrible. Um, and, uh, and so upon graduating seminary, um, you have to take it again so that they can measure how much you've, you've learned. And it increased, but it still wasn't 100. Um, but it's great. What I've, what I've been telling some of the men that I've been discipling lately is that's the beauty of Scripture, is that you get to go back to it over and over and over again. And so let the words of God form you. Let your life be saturated in those words so that you're... you're not ignorant and you're not complacent in not walking faithfully uh, with the Lord and in our culture because um, we are to be in the world but not of the world and that's what a biblical Christian is is in the world because our ministry is here we glorify God we evangelize we disciple but we are not of this world or this is not our home I think that that really is a great answer to to what keeps Christians from seeking biblical answers for cultural issues. Mm-hmm. Man, if we could get boil this down, we could have cut thirty minutes out of this podcast. Right. Um, we are afraid of not fitting in, and we have a lack of faith or a lack of belief right. 
that the words of God absolutely turn the world upside down, bring life, are satisfying, bring blessing, and are eternal. Yeah. And if I was more believing in that uh, and less fearful, I would, I'd never put it down. Yeah. I'd constantly be meeting with God and his word, even even if it was selfishly motivated, if that's it just would be so that I might experience more abundant life yeah. myself. Yeah. Or if it was because I'm, I'm so burdened for, for the brokenness around me because I believe the only true life can be found in really the word of God, Christ, the revelation of God, and how God has given us this, this way of flourishing with him. I pour over it. Because I would believe that's the only way brokenness could be healed. Right. If I had less fear and more yeah. faith. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's interesting as you're speaking, I, my mind goes to Psalm 34, hmm. beginning in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And there is fear, but fear of the Lord, a reverence, an awe, a healthy understanding of who God is. Um, but as you mentioned, if, if you uh, began to, to eat the words of God or, or read the words of God, uh, you understand that you don't lack anything. You have a personal relationship with him. Um, and I, I, I'm reminded of a story I heard years ago of, uh, of a rabbi teaching uh, young boys um, uh, young Jewish boys to take uh, the the Psalms, turn to Psalm 34, and he, this rabbi had a sheet of wax paper that they laid on Psalm 34, and he dropped uh, honey on that wax paper. And then whenever he read verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the boys were instructed to touch the honey that was on the scripture and place it in their mouth so that they would have a sweetness to the word of God. And that's just always stood out to me. Mm. Uh, while I, I don't recommend putting honey in our Bibles, I do uh, challenge us to sit back and think when we read, how am I tasting the word of God and how am I tasting that he is good? How can I relate that to, to my senses? Uh, just beyond reading how am I hearing the word of God? How am I tasting the word of God? How am I feeling the word of God? And that plays out over and over and over in our lives. Well, let's kind of end uh, with this. Um, are there some parts of the Bible you think Christians just tend to ignore? I do. Um, <laughs> there is, uh, I, my mind specifically goes to uh, the epistles where it talks about interpersonal relationships um, due to uh, just how uncomfortable it is to uh, call a, a brother or sister out in their sin or to approach them when uh, another brother or sister who is actively sinning and they need to uh, lovingly correct them. Uh, I think we either ignore it or again it's that cursory reading of well it says call them out so this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm going to tell Justin that he's wrong um, but there is there's not uh, a relationship or or grace involved in that. Um, and then even um, a, another area because I've, I've been reading through the the prophets lately. I think we tend to skim over the prophets because we're 
told time and time again how Israel ignored their neighbor. They're not, not, not the neighboring countries, but their fellow humans, their, their brothers and sisters in Israel. Um, and, and Christ even touches on this, right? Is um, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, who is, who is my neighbor? You know, um, And so I think we, we sometimes tend to, to look over how we are to treat one another. Um, and, and I say so as, as, a, as a person who continually uh, interacts with people and I'm having to ask the Lord, okay, God, how am I called to love this person in this situation, in this, uh, in this hard situation? Um, and so I, I think it's easy for us to skim over it um, so that we can say, well, I just don't know it, or uh, that's not the easy thing that I should do. So I'm, I'm just going to push that to the side. Okay, so um, bottom line, uh, how can we become more Bible-formed Christians? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if there are resources, uh, things people might do or read uh, that would help them to engage in Scripture or to think more biblically than culturally, uh, how can we become more Bible-formed Christians? Yeah. Um, first and foremost, it seems like a simple answer, but read the Bible for yourself. Yeah. Uh, don't let it be my pastor or a pastor once said. Uh, let it be because you have immersed yourself in the scriptures. I have studied, you know, not, and again, not from an arrogant standpoint, but because uh, I have studied and I'm learning and I'm growing. This is what scripture says. The Lord has said. Um, and then a, another answer is, is engage in a small group. Uh, that way you are able to study scripture and dialogue with other Christians so that you can uh, remember and engage these ideas. Um, and then, okay, I do have two other things. Uh, so I'll, I'll say this, <laughs> these real quick. Uh, we started uh, our time together with you mentioning the, the Feast of Tabernacles or, or booths. Um, and so there's a rhythm or a pattern to the life of uh, Israel. Well, we as Christians have uh, maybe not feasts, but a rhythm or a pattern called the liturgical year. And so it's this, this Christian year spirituality where we are enabled to experience the biblical mandate of conforming to, to Christ. Uh, so the Christian year orders our formation with Christ in his ministry, his death, his burial and resurrection, and his coming again. And so we celebrate Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, and Pentecost. And so when we engage um, the liturgical year, and there are great introductory books, or if someone wants to email me, I can point them in that direction. But utilizing the Christian calendar or the Christian year so that we can begin to see where in Scripture the life of Christ is and how he lived and how we are to be formed through uh, the work of the Spirit into the image of Christ. And then the last, you know, I said I had two more things, so the last thing is catechisms. Um, and I know a lot of people may have uh, worry about that or unfamiliar what catechisms are. The, the simple answer is catechisms are just instructions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most common form that we find is question and answer. So whether that's the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Heidelberg or a great modern one is the New City Catechism. By uh, um, Tim Keller. Tim Keller. Tim and Kathy. Yep. And, 
Redeemer in yep, New York? That is correct. Um, it's simple. They have it, they've modeled it so even young kids can work through it. Mm -hmm. And so that's something fun that, that families can and we do. We have the uh, New City and the New City for Kids. There's okay. a, a special one for that yeah, as well. That's awesome. And it's question answer. Yes. It's a question and an answer. Right. Um, which typically a sentence or two. Right. But it begins to build into your mind, which moves into your heart, uh, the answers for the questions yep. uh, about God, about life, yep. about identity, about, about place in this world, all of yeah. those kinds of things. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'd, I'd kind of end at this, uh, the invitation of Jesus and Matthew 11, Jesus said, come to me, mm. all who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart, mm. and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation of Christ is to come to him, to hear from him, to learn from him, to take his yoke, literally meant to take his teaching, his way right. upon you. Learn from him he yeah. is his invitation. Why? Remember, commands and reasons are often paired throughout the scriptures. Why? For Jesus says, I am gentle. He's not angry. Right. He's not aggressive. He's not punishing. He's, he's gentle. Yeah. He's humble in heart. Why should I, I do these things? Why should I come to him and learn from him? For you'll find rest for your souls. Why? Because his yoke is easy. His burden is light. A Bible-formed life as a life that flourishes amidst whatever trouble the world may come. Jesus said, you'll have many troubles. Yeah. He's overcome the world. Come to him. He'll give you rest. Yeah. It's the invitation of Jesus to a, a life formed around the very word of God. Yeah. All right. So this is the longest podcast to date. We're at an hour and 10 minutes, but I feel like we ought to come back to this again sometime. Several sidebar conversations to get started that I think yeah. we need to dive into I want to talk about inerrancy sometime in the yep. near future. Um, different, different. There are five or so different views about inerrancy. We yeah. could discuss at least four uh, that would be good for discussion and kind of where we land yeah. in that that, would be that conversation. So, but for today, that's it. This is the but wait. There's more podcast. A podcast that's part of the teaching ministry of Legacy Church in Plano, Texas. Today we talked about the Bible formed life versus the culture formed life. Uh, and uh, I think we had a pretty good conversation. Yep. Yeah, hope, awesome. hope it's helpful for folks. Okay, I'm Kevin Boyd. This is Justin Foster. Love being with you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.